Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you for that truth we've just been singing about. Father, thank you that your love is vast as the ocean. And Father, it's shown to us through the Lord Jesus. We pray this morning as we look into your words, speak to us. Change us, Father. Help us to love and serve the Lord Jesus better. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. How do you advance in the Christian life? How do you stop stagnating and grow? Now, there are plenty of books on the subject. Uh, I had a look online this week, and uh, one most 30 ways that you can grow as a Christian. I would tell you what they were, uh, but I couldn't afford the book. Um, it's certainly a way to grow a bank account, uh, if nothing else. But the Galatians, the people that Paul was writing to in the letter we had read, they were growing as Christians. They had started out after hearing Paul uh, preach the gospel in their towns. It would seem that they'd gone through threats and jibes and persecutions, and they kept going. They turned their back on their old way of life, and they'd gone all out for Jesus. But then, something changed. A few months later, after Paul had gone, some new preachers had arrived in the neighbourhood, claiming to have the real key to Christian growth, claiming to have the full gospel. Paul, according to them, was a two-bit apostle. Wasn't even one of the twelve. A second-rate apostle had heard his gospel off someone else. He was a people-pleaser, just out to get converts. He only gave you his version of the gospel. An easy one, a cheap one. He gave you grace and truth, but he missed out the law. He gave you a gospel made more palatable for the Gentiles like you guys. But we bring ours undiluted, straight from Jerusalem, a true Jewish gospel. Want to grow, they said? Want to be truly right with God? Then you need to obey the Jewish law. That's what they said. You must become a child of Abraham and be circumcised as he was, as the law demands. And Paul is writing this letter to show them how wrong these teachers were. How their idea of the gospel and the Christian life is not just an alternative take on the gospel. It's a completely different gospel altogether. One that will not save you. They are preaching works of the law, as we saw last week. He is preaching faith alone, in Christ alone. They are preaching by salvation by trying to be good, and he is preaching that no one is good, and all must be saved by God's grace. In other words, Paul is reminding them that uh, salvation is a gift from our Heavenly Father, not wages from our Heavenly Line Manager. And initially, the Galatians had believed this message. They really had. But so quickly, they turned aside. So Paul writes to them to bring them back to the true gospel and tell them the real way to grow in the Christian life. Now, we're not the Galatians, are we, this morning? But we need to listen in here too. Because down through the ages, this teaching that the false teachers brought in has reared its ugly head in one form or another. Trying to move us on from faith in Christ onto other things. So we need to listen in to learn how to grow in the Christian life and also how we start in the Christian life as well. So three points this morning. Firstly, faith alone in Christ alone is where you started. That's where he reminds them first. 
Have a look at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul cannot believe what has happened. He says it's it's like someone's put a spell on you. It's like someone's hypnotised you. I preach to you Christ crucified. I laid before your eyes Jesus' death as key to it all. I set your eyes on Christ. Who's come and distracted you away from him? Of course we know the answer, don't we? This group of false teachers who had come in and started to gain influence among the Galatians. Jesus is a good place to start, yeah, but if you want to advance, you need to be going to the Old Testament law. You need to be circumcised, you need to stop eating pork and self shell not selfish, shellfish. You need to start celebrating festivals that we find in the Old Testament. And Paul just cannot believe it. What are you doing? You foolish Galatians, literally you mindless Galatians. It's like you've emptied your head. But before we're too harsh on them, let's be aware that we are prone to this, to the law drift as well. Think about it, so often there's a gear shift, isn't it? Isn't there? Between how we present becoming a Christian and how we present living as a Christian. When someone's looking into the faith, we make it really clear, don't we? It's not about rules, it's about relationship. It's not about laws, it's about life, life to the full. No, it's not about religion, it's about Christ. And then someone comes in, you're in? Great, okay, here we go. Rule book. That's how we start, isn't it? We, we, we sort of tell them all the way, it's not about rules. And then suddenly we give them a load of rules. No smoking. Church at least once on a Sunday. Read your Bible every day. No swearing. No 18-rated movies. No stealing. And the list goes on. Now all those rules have varying degree of merit. But they are not the essence of the Christian life. And if we make the Christian life about how we are doing at those things, then we've fallen into the same trap as the Galatians, just in a different context. So Paul has some wake-up questions for them to help them think about this. Something to wake them up from their bewitchment. And the first one is this, it's in verse 2. I need to move my rule book. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? You received the Spirit when you became a Christian, yes. What did, uh, how did that happen? Was it by being circumcised? Was it by honouring your father and mother? Was it some Jewish festival that you kept? No. Wasn't it when you heard the Gospel and believed it? Wasn't that when the Spirit came, what he did? Wasn't it by faith that you received the Spirit? Again and again in the book of Acts, Paul preached the truth of the gospel. The people believed it, and they received the Spirit. They became disciples, believers. It was through hearing with faith. It wasn't through trying really, really hard or doing something really, really good. It was by hearing the gospel and believing it. And if you're a Christian here this morning, it's the same for us, isn't it? How did you become a Christian? Was it by some great act of charity? Was it after you followed the Ten Commandments for a number of weeks, months, years? 
Was it when you went through some religious ceremony? I don't to say it was not. Was it boi- not stopping boiling out a goat in its mother's milk? That's a real law in Exodus. Was it when you did that? No, of course not. It was when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you put your trust in what he did on the cross to make you right with God. That's when your Christian life started. For me, that was when I was age 12. I heard the message about Jesus, the great doctor who came to deal with my sin. And I believed it. I wasn't, it wasn't when I was christened, that was 11 years before. My parents were unbelievers, but they were sort of the thing to do in those days. It wasn't when I was baptised as an adult, that was four years afterwards. Again, baptism is a good thing to do, but it doesn't make you a Christian. That's not when the Spirit comes and indwells you. That's when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus. If it were baptism, then Jesus was lying to the thief on the cross when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Could you imagine him at the gates of heaven? No, sorry, he didn't get baptised, not allowed, sorry. No, sorry, not enough good works, thief on the cross, not allowed in. No, all he needed was faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's the way to heaven, if that's the way to glory, why would you change your direction halfway through? And so he comes to verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If faith is the way to go, which we're saying it is, why switch to some other way? That's wake-up call number two, if you like. One commentator likens it to a ship sailing along. The wind in its sails bringing it safely into port. There's work to be done on the ship, but the wind is powering the ship home. Then all of a sudden, the captain of the ship shouts, Right, sails down. I've decided we're going to row the rest of the way. And the sails come down, all the hands on the ship get out their oars, and they start the arduous task of attempting to row to port. If the first way was working, and it was how you started, why would you change to a different way partway through? Why would you change to a way that evidently doesn't work, that won't get you safely home? And yet we know our human nature, don't we? So often we act that way. We'd rather feel like we're contributing something than having something done for us. But we have to understand that we can't do that for our justification, for our entry into the kingdom. But what we need to realise as well is the same is true for the life in the kingdom. The same gospel that saves us, sanctifies us. In other words, those righteous by faith shall live by faith. There shouldn't be that gear change when we come into the kingdom. Not that we now have a license to sin, don't hear me wrong, but that now we are free not to sin. We have a power and a motivation not to do what we did before. More of this in the last two letters of the chapter, we will get there. But returning to the law is not the way to go in the Christian life. It's a dead end that will discourage <coughs> and paralyse us. Paul has two more wake-up calls for them in our second point, And they focus, that was how we started. But now what about sin? So our second point, that was our first faith alone, in Christ alone is where you started. <coughs> second point, 
For faith alone you suffered and saw the Spirit's power. Now wake up call number three has to do with their sufferings. And he's saying, did you suffer all that just to change your minds? Have a look at verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? The context in Galatia, we find out from the book of Acts, is that Jews came from the neighbouring towns and had had Paul kicked out of the cities that he was trying to preach in in this area. So Acts 14 uh, says this, but the crowd came from Antioch, uh, sorry, the, the Jewish crowds came from Antioch, Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. These are cities that are mentioned there. They're in Galatia. And I imagine being a Jewish convert in those cities was not easy, to say the least. Having to take a stand, potentially going against your ethnic community by no longer following their norms. Perhaps no longer just eating kosher food. Perhaps no longer following those 613 rules that you find in the Torah. Perhaps no longer circumcising your children. Being a Gentile coming in must have been hard too. Claiming that the Jewish Messiah was your Messiah, but refusing to follow Jewish ways. I imagine that the persecution and the pressure was immense. But it seems now that they're going back on that. They seem to be standing down. Having faced all that persecution for their position, they're now abandoning it. And so Paul says, did you suffer all that in vain? Suffering for Christ and his gospel, and now abandoning that gospel. Notice though he says, if it was in vain. Paul still has hope for the Galatians. He's writing this letter to them so that they come back. He's not saying they're too far gone. He wants them to come back in. He's saying there's time to turn around and return. You can come back to the true gospel. And the same is true for us. Don't give up on the gospel. Think about your Christian life. You've got this far. You've been through so much. Why give up on it now? Come back to the Lord, return to the right path if you've been going astray. The final wake-up call also has to do with their experience since they became Christians. He's asking them, where does the power come from? Have a look at verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit in you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, it says miracles in our translation, but the word is much broader. It's just a normal word for power. He's saying all that you've seen in your Christian life, perhaps it is miracles, lives changed, supernatural occurrences, demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's power, things that could only have been done by God. Did they start when you stopped eating pork or when you put your trust in Jesus? Do they only happen when you're observing Jewish holidays or when you're calling out to God in faith? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's by faith. But again, we can fall into this trap as believers today, thinking that God only works among us based on our outward righteousness. 
We subtly turn God from being our gracious heavenly father back into being an employer who only grants bonuses to the hardest working employees. Now we have to tread a careful line here, as Paul does in the letter. I'm not suggesting by that that obedience to God does not matter. That A, it does not save you, and B, it doesn't earn you the right to things that other Christians don't have. Health, wealth, whatever. God's way is the best way. There is a sense in which those who live by what it says in God's words should end up with a better life, if you like. There should be things that are better off. So the book of Proverbs can say, uh, keeping on our joy theme, Proverbs 29, verse 6, An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. There should be a general truth to that. There should be a way in which life is better. But some things will be harder, though. Just ask people in the suffering churches elsewhere in the world. Just ask Paul who spent a chunk of his life in prison and being bad-mouthed and being beaten up. I'm not saying that everything gets easier, but there is a a sense in, uh, in which there should be some sort of change there. But it doesn't earn you the right to that. I'm also not suggesting that sin doesn't matter for the Christian. But A, it will not damn you finally, And B, it does not hinder God from acting. God is our Heavenly Father. Sometimes he will discipline us for our sin. He disciplines those he loves, it says in Hebrews. There are consequences for our sin, and sin is always destructive and harmful. Paul will go on to say in chapter 6, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are consequences for our sin. But sin does not thwart God's plans in the way that some suggest. You know, as though if you're looking for a miracle, well then cut that sin out of your life and your prayers will be answered. Want that promotion? Well then stop being greedy and give 10% of your paycheck to church. That sort of mindset turns God into some sort of wish-granting genie or some blessing vending machine. You know, obedience comes in, blessing comes out. But friends, God doesn't work like that. God works among us by faith. He provides the Spirit by faith. But we again have to be very careful here. Otherwise, faith just becomes the coin in the vending machine. The genie to, the way to get the genie to grant your wishes. You know, want to be healed? Just have more faith. Want your child to be saved? Just believe it in your heart and it will happen. Really, if you think about it, that's just a different version of the same thing, isn't it? Because it makes faith a work. A work that I do to get something. But the value of faith, the faith that he's talking about here, is not how much you have, but what your faith is in. Now I know that's a bit cliched, but it's important here. Because really it comes down to whether your faith is in God or in yourself. These miracles, says Paul, did you produce them or did God do them? The Holy Spirit coming, did you do that or did God do that? Works, obedience, even faith itself, if we talk about it as something that we produce... All that really is trusting in ourselves. 
But true faith is trusting in God to act. Trusting in his capacity and character, not our own. Trusting in what Christ has done and not what we do. And that means that God does not treat us according to our outward righteousness. His power at work in us is by faith when we trust him. (coughs) But these false teachers, by moving them away from faith and towards the law for their righteousness and growth, they've really started to mess things up. They're trying to trust in themselves. Their claim, though, that uh, to be a follower of the Jewish Messiah, you must become Jewish, has done no end of harm to the Galatians. They don't really understand what they should be doing anymore. So as part of what Paul is wanting to talk to them about, he needs to show them that even the Jewish law, even the Jewish scriptures, show that it's not ourselves that we trust in, but God. Even if you're a really righteous person, it's still God that we trust in. And to be truly a child of Abraham is to be the faith, to have the faith of Abraham. And so our last point. Abraham and his children are counted righteous by faith alone. Now this point will continue on through the next couple of weeks. The chapter sort of holds together. But Paul takes the Galatians back to Abraham. Famous at this point as the father of the Jewish race. Have a look at verses 6 to 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now you may think that Abraham is just another Old Testament character like Noah that we were hearing about earlier. But you'd be wrong. That's not how the Old Testament or the New Testament see him. After Genesis in the Old Testament, he's mentioned 43 times in the rest of the Old Testament. Noah gets eight mentions in the rest of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Abraham is mentioned 72 times. Noah again just gets eight mentions. That should give you an idea that Abraham is something big in the Bible. Abraham is a huge deal. Why? Because with Abraham, God's gospel plan really kicks into action. God's plan to undo what went wrong in the Garden of Eden is set in motion with a promise spoken to a childless 80-year-old man in a land far away from where the action in the Bible takes place. And it's not by water or by wars or by wonders that the world is turned around. It's by words that the world is turned upside down. Just as God made the world by speaking, as we saw earlier with the kids' talks in Genesis, so he begins to remake the world by speaking. He speaks to Abraham. And Abraham's part in this was to believe what God was saying, to believe his promises, hearing with faith, Which is what Paul has been arguing all the way through. Paul's point here is that the great father Abraham was friends with God through faith, not by works of the law. He quotes from Genesis 15 verse 6, uh, in verse 6 of our passage, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was like Abraham's righteousness account 
if you like, with God, was empty. In fact, he was in debt to God. But all Abraham has is faith in what God has said, hearing with faith. And God looks at Abraham's faith, and he makes a sort of currency exchange. I'll count that faith as righteousness. You're now righteous in my sight, says God, because of your faith. Abraham may not have known the mechanics of that conversion, how it's Christ's righteousness that he received. He may not have known that, living as he did before Christ, but he got that righteousness anyway. That was how Abraham got his righteousness, not by works of the law, but by trusting in God. It was about his faith, not his foreskin. It wasn't about circumcision. And so the sons of Abraham are not those who share his genetic code, but those who share his faith. Now think about what Paul is saying here. Those false teachers are saying you need to become more Jewish in order to be a better believer. You need to become a child of Abraham by getting circumcised. Well, Paul's point here is that if you have faith, you're already a child of Abraham whether you're ethnically Jewish or not. Jew and Gentile together here are counted as sons of Abraham. We know that's what he means because he goes on to talk about the Gentiles, the non-Jews in that way in verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. He even calls it the gospel here. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. All the nations shall be blessed, the Lord said to Abraham. Now the word there for nations in Greek and Hebrew is the same word as the word for Gentiles. Which makes the link even more obvious. You could read it as this. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the Gentiles be blessed. That would be a perfectly reasonable translation. It was always on God's agenda to bring the Gentiles in. The gospel to the nations was always the plan. And all would be saved the same way. By faith alone, in Christ alone. And that means now that Jew and Gentile share in the blessing promised to Abraham. Do you see that in verse 9? So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those who are truly Abraham's children are not those who have circumcision like Abraham, but who have faith like Abraham. You've already Abraham's children, says Paul. You already have the blessing of Abraham. You don't do it, get it, by moving away from Christ to the law, because Christ is actually what those promises that God made to Abraham were about. More of that in future weeks. So really, saying if you want to advance in the Christian life, which is where we started. How do you advance in the Christian life? How do you stop stagnating and grow? Well, the first part of the answer has got to be this, hasn't it? It's not by moving away from Christ to a rule book. That's not how we grow. Moving away from Christ for anything is a bad idea. Because away from Christ, there is no growth. He is the vine, we are the branches. So as we go on, we go on as we started. We go back to the beginning. 
We started by faith alone in Christ alone. And we live that out day by day, trusting in Christ. Trusting as Abraham trusted. Applying what Christ has done to our lives. Step by step making progress in our Christian lives. Sticking with Christ. Now that doesn't sound so catchy or so trendy as 30 ways to grow in Christ. It may not sell many books or make a bestseller list. But really it's telling us there's only one way to grow in Christ. And it starts with sticking with Christ and not moving on from him. So let's pray that God would grant us the strength, the patience and endurance to stick with Christ this week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for that gospel. A gospel that you preached all those years ago to Abraham. That we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, forgive us for times when we've sought other ways to grow, when we've moved away from Christ, to try doing it in our own strength and effort. Father, help us to keep coming back to Christ and his strength. Father, help us to remember that he is the vine and we are the branches. And Father, help us to grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing again before we uh, share the Lord's Supper together. And uh, it's a song that reminds us that it's not by the law's demands uh, that we're made righteous in Christ, but only God can save. Let's stand and sing.